So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection with your hosts, Rico Shields and Jean Victoria Norlock. Bringing your inner light to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this Thursday edition of Everyday Connection. I'm Rico Shields, and I have with me Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm fantastic, Rick. How are you doing? I'm just great. Awesome. It turned back into summer here in Houston, but that's okay. It'll get cold again. Yeah, it's a little bit creepy over here in Canada as well, got to say. Um, you know, plus seven, mid, mid-December, and a lot of rain. So yeah. the weather's weather's a little odd. <laughs> yeah, expecting mid December in Montreal, I would think more snow perhaps than rain. But I was expecting snow, uh, not yet. But uh, who knows? What will, will happen before Christmas? I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure we'll be graced with a nice dusting of of white stuff before then. So. It's well, I hope so. I hope so. So. I'd like to give a shout-out at the beginning of our show, as we usually do, to our family over at Inner Child. Just a fantastic group of folks. Um, like I say, we call them family. Uh, some people might call them friends. I don't know. But innerchild.ning.com would be the uh, uh, social site where you can find Bill and uh, Clan. And we're almost to not be able to announce this contest anymore. It's almost over. Yeah, I guess it is getting closer to the closing date. Yes, it is. The yeah. World Healing World Peace Poetry 2012 contest. Tell them all about it and the prizes they've won. Oh, no. yeah, well, basic, <laughs> basically, guys, it's a it's an international contest put on by uh, Inner Child Press um, and and affiliates. So. Um, I guess family members really. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of people have gotten together to make this possible, and uh, it's open to anybody um, to submit a poem about the topic of world, he- world healing and world peace. And there will be three top winners, and included in the prize for the top winners are they will get a book of their poetry published in their hands, and. Everybody who enters will be also published inside an anthology that Inner Child Press is putting together, as well as uh, quite the remarking, remarkable um, promotions and, and marketing arrangement that they've made with several talk shows and several radio shows to bring the uh, three winners on as guests. Yeah, so big promotion package for the three winners. Uh, your poem in print, provided it hits their uh, entry guidelines which you can find at their website, 
which is World Healing, World Peace Poetry, 2012, dot com, And, of course, the link is uh, up in the chat room. And uh, we have a link up on our website. Uh, just look right up at the top where it says, Got Poetry? That would be the one. Okay. How's that coffee? Oh, well, <laughs> it's better when I manage to figure out how to drink it when I think somebody else is going to say something. And then I, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's what I get for thinking. I was enjoying <clears throat> that too much. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, sometimes. Like putting my partner on the spot. My little um, sister like that got me. <clears throat> so we've got a guest sitting in the wings, patiently waiting for us to stop yammering about uh, inconsequential nonsense. Ah, uh, well, yes, it's our patient's uh, test that we give all of our guests. If they go, hey, what about me, before we get done, then we, well, I don't know what we'll do. Nobody's ever done that. <laughs> but we have with us tonight uh, Kathleen O'Keefe Canavos, who uh, is the author of Surviving Cancerland. How are you, Kathleen? I'm fine, Rick. How are you? Oh, just doing great. Thrilled to have you here with us this evening. Well, thank you. And uh, thrilled that you survived Cancerland. I'm, I'm sad that you went there, but thrilled that you survived so that you could come tell us about it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm glad to be over that, too, and I'm, I'm quite sure I am. But it was, uh, Cancerland was an interesting place to live in for a while, but um, I'm, I'm glad I've moved out of it, and I have written a book about it in case there are other people that have to fall down that rabbit hole and um surviving it can be can be challenging. I'm sure that's true. I'm uh all I've ever had was a brief scare. I had a strange thing inside me that they took all kinds of tests and scans and things and said, "Well, we still don't know what it is, so I guess we'll just go cut it out." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Really cut? Do you just have to say that word?" <clears throat> but uh apparently they do, but then it was nothing. So, um I, I got to have the big sigh of relief. Yeah, that would be. Well, mine was kind of the opposite of that in that the doctors were saying, well, you're healthy, go home. Um, you know, we'll see you in a year. And my dreams were saying, no, you have breast cancer. It's right here. And you go back to your doctors. So, and, and I had to convince my doctors to cut something out of me that they didn't know was there. So it was kind of the flip coin of that. Oh, I know that story well. <laughs> I had to convince them that my back was broken. It took them six months to figure it out. Uh, yeah. Well, they're That's particularly cool. fond of that in pain cases. They decide you're uh, prescription shopping. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. It took them six Shame months on them. of me saying uh, my, back's, my back is uh, damaged. It's injured. It's something. Something's wrong with it. And uh, they just, here, take these. You must be depressed. Or here, take these. That'll take the pain away. And they, eventually they found the fracture, but it took them a while. I think so they I finally, what, what they finally x-rayed it just so they could get you to hush? Or? <laughs> no, um, no, I think he x-rayed it because that's when my muscles started seizing. So I think he started getting scared. Ah, uh, yes. Might ought to check before we dismiss him. Because I was telling him I didn't want the narcotics. I was turning down the narcotics. And at that point, he started to worry just a little bit. So, <laughs> so. You're an author, and my norm- normally my first question would be, um, who the hell are you and what do you do? But uh, we, apparently we covered that a little bit, so I'm going to I stepped add- on her question. You stepped on my question. That's okay. I still love you. Um, 
I'm just going to ask a bit about the initial journey of, because you said that your dreams were telling you that you were sick um, and your doctors weren't mm-hmm. leaving. So can we talk a little more about how your dreams brought you to a state of awareness and, and where, where where do you get off listening to your dreams anyways? Well, um, it started when I went in for my, you know, normal yearly uh, physical exam like most women do, you know, mammogram, pap smear, all that, you know, testing blood tests and having a hundred different guys touching your body everywhere. And uh, the doctors said, well, your test came back perfect. Um, you're, you're healthy. Go home. And I started having nightmares. And in the nightmares, which mine, you know, were unusual in that I would be having a dream and I would have a pop-up in my dream, just like you get a pop-up on a computer. And in this pop-up, a guide would come through and my guides are dressed like monks. They have on the robes, those kind of brown robes with the hoods on them and the rope belt and the, the leather sandals. And they said, um, Come back, come with us. We want to, we, we have to give you some information. We have to tell you something. And they would take me through this pop-up to what I call the realm between realms. And it's a room between our, our earth plane living and the other side where, where you go when you die. And it's in between those two realms. And people who have passed over can come into the room and give you information. And yet you're still connected to the earth plane because you are still alive. And my guides said, um, you have breast cancer. And they actually took my hand and put it on my breast and said, it is right here. Do you feel that? And I could feel it in my dream. And they said, go back to your doctors and tell them that you need exploratory surgery. That's the only thing that's going to get it to show up. So I did. I went back to my doctor four times, got four more mammograms, four more blood tests. I couldn't get him to do anything else. And finally... After the fourth time when I went home, that night I had the dream again, and my guide stepped through, and I started crying. And I said, look, I've done everything you've told me to do. I've gone back four times, and I've had mammograms and blood tests four more times. But they're not listening to me. If you want them to listen to me, if you want me to live, you're going to have to do something to help me because I'm up against a rock and hard spot. And my guide reached into his pocket and pulled out this beautiful little teeny tiny white feather, like something that you would pull out of a a pull-up. I'm, I'm not talking about a long, you know, peacock feather. No, just a little white feather. And he said, if you go back to your doctor tomorrow without an appointment and you fence, verbally fence with him and imagine holding this angel feather, you'll get the surgery that you need. But you're going to have to speak to him as though you were an attorney speaking to a judge that doesn't even like you. So the next day I went back without an appointment. And when he said, I'm sorry, Kathy, I can't do, you know, I I can't do exploratory surgery on you just because you want it. It's against hospital policy. It's against my policy. You could come down with an infection. You could have complications on the table from anesthesia. We can't just do it because you want it. You're healthy. And I imagine taking out that feather and I pointed it right at him in my mind. And I said, you need to listen to me. You know that I wouldn't be here if something wasn't wrong. I'm not one to show up and beg for blood tests. You take five, six to even get my veins. Please help me. And all of a sudden, he just looked at me. It was almost like I was one of those vampires that glimmered somebody. And he said, 
they said, um, okay. And I was scheduled within two weeks. I was scheduled for uh, the surgery. And I remember saying to him in his office, well, who's going to perform the surgery? And he said, well, I am, Kathy. You're too young for cancer. Um, you don't have cancer in your family. I would know what cancer feels like. And if it's anything at all, it's just a fibristic tumor. And I'm just going to take it out, and that's going to be the end of it. And so I had the I had the surgery, and while I was under anesthesia, I heard him say, "We got it all closer up." And I was so anxious that I dragged myself out of anesthesia. And to drag yourself out of anesthesia is like trying to run run in a dream. It's like you're like on all fours trying to run. You just can't seem to run. And, uh, but I did it. Uh, somehow I dragged myself up that dark well of anesthesia and I turned my head and I said to my doctor, what was it? And the whole room just, just froze. And all I could see were these eyes over mouths because they have little hats on their heads and their mouths and their noses are covered up. And it was like the beginning of cancer land. It was like, oh my gosh, what did I take? And, um, he said, Kathy, this is what we thought it was. It's just a fibristic tumor, and I heard the anesthesiologist, as he came up over the top of my head, say, did she just speak? And my doctor said, yeah, give her more. Well, it took like hours for me to come out of that anesthesia, and I was so nauseous. But my doctor walked into the recovery room, and he said, well, um, pathology didn't like what they saw when they cut the tumor open. Then I said, was it breast cancer? And he said, yes, it is. It's stage two. Now I'm going to have to refer you to a specialist. And I wanted a specialist in there in the first place. But um, because he had cut into a cancerous area and he was not an oncological surgeon, they had to really rush to get another surgeon to open me up again, make sure they had gotten clear margins, and to check my lymph nodes. And it was in my lymph nodes. I was already stage two with it in my lymph nodes with an extremely aggressive breast cancer that they had missed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we like to point out every once in a while that doctors aren't quite perfect either. No, we don't, no. We don't claim perfection, but doctors aren't either. And uh, I think the moral of this story is that doctors sometimes believe so much in their scientific past that I think just about every patient that comes into the hospital are, is there because they know something is wrong. And if the doctor will listen, he will, he, and ask the right questions, he can almost get the right answers from the patient. His real problem is hospital policy because a lot of hospital policies tie the doctor's hands and don't allow them to do additional tests that they would like to do because the symptoms aren't there. Right. Or the, you know, well, we could get our pants suit off for doing surgery without test results to back it up. And all this kind of lawyers and doctors mixed up. And that's, that's not really good. Lawyers and doctors mixed. <clears throat> oh, no, it's not. But that's where learning how to play that hospital game is so important. Not only does it protect you, but it protects your doctor. It does. And and the two of you become a team and they trust in you and you trust in them. And in a, in a way, when I was going through this, I was healing my doctors from the disease of hospital policy, which puts hospital first and patients 
somewhere further down the rung. Um, you know, and, and hospitals need to be there for the patients because if the patients are gone, there's no need to have a hospital. Right. Now, um, there's a lot to be said for following your your guides and your instinct, but I'm, I'm curious, before you went to Cancerland, um, how, how much of communication had you had with your guides prior to that? Or did they just suddenly appear when you were in trouble? Well, that's an interesting question, Victoria. Um, I am actually like fourth generation psychic. But my mother, who was also psychic, was raised in a Catholic convent when her mother, who was a trapeze artist in the Barnum and Bailey Circus, was dropped and died. So she was probably about four or five when she went to the convent and was raised by the Catholic nuns. And right away, she figured out that's not something you talk about to anyone. So when she started realizing, probably when I, well, I think probably around two two years old, she figured out that something was going on with me because I could hear voices. And I would tell her, I hear so-and-so calling my name. And she, she would say, well, it's just your grandmother or your grandfather telling you that they love you. Well, my, I knew my grandparents were dead. But if that didn't bother her, it wasn't going to bother me. And I also had an invisible friend from the time I was in my crib named Gigi. Um, you know, if my first words were mama and dada, my next ones were Gigi. But um, once I started school and uh, kindergarten to be exact, my teacher called in my parents because I was drawing auras. Uh, rather than coloring inside the lines, I was drawing People's heads purple and their torsos were red and their feet were green or, um, and I was outside the lines and they told my parents to take me to an ophthalmologist and get my eyes checked. Well, the ophthalmologist decided that I was just a little girl in the military, uh, traveling around all the time without any friends and an only child who needed extra attention. And that was when I first realized that other people couldn't see the things that I could see, which were auras. And explaining an aura to them, which I tried to explain to him as a kindergartner, was like trying to explain uh, pink flowers on a green bush to someone with red-green colorblindness. They're not going to get it. They're going to say, check that child's eyes or something wrong with their eyes. So as I was growing up, I pushed my psychic abilities down. I kept them in a closet. My mother said, you don't talk about this. These are like skeletons in the closet. You don't take them out and you don't play with them. The church doesn't like this. You never, ever mention this to the priest or the nuns, ever. And so all of my life growing up, I kept it in the closet, very quiet. I never talked about it. I ignored it and told the voices to leave me alone. But when my life was endangered, all of a sudden, they just blew out of that door. They blew the lock off the door and came flying to the top and said, yeah, okay, we would be quiet as long as you were okay. But right now, it's not your time to die. You have something to do. You have, you still have a purpose here on the earth plane, and we're not going to stay quietly in the closet and let you die because this is not being found. And so then they came through in a very strong way and guided me. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Sometimes it's um, you know, people will talk about that they 
had an experience and where they actually heard a voice, but they'd never heard one before and never after, and that's sort of that is that urgent we're gonna gonna break the rules a little and talk to you uh, even though you've told us to go away yeah yeah that could happen but you know a lot of people the crisis will bring that spirituality or that or that um that uh, intuitiveness to the surface because i really believe that our bodies have been speaking to us since the beginning of time and you know women in the cave knew when they were getting ready to menstruate they knew when they were pregnant they knew when they were going through PMS, when they were going to go through menopause, they knew that their bodies spoke to them and our bodies still speak to us. There are scribbles on um, cave walls, paintings of people sleeping and having dreams. So I believe the dream realm from the other side has been an active part of human beings and human development since the beginning of time because we are bodies inhabited by spirit. And although our bodies change from life to life, if you believe in reincarnation, the spirit remains the same. So it's almost like our body is just clothing that we change, but our real essence is continuous. And that essence Mm. connects with the dream realm, which are the people over on the other side, the people we've known through all the other lives, our spirit guides, our guardian angels, we're their jobs down here on the earth plane where we have so many choices. But I believe that we have the choice when we, we choose to come down here onto the earth. And I believe that when we come down, we come with what I call a celestial game plan. And we have certain things that we want to do. We're going to do these things while we're here. And our guides are here to keep us on the right path when we come to forks in the road. And there are a lot of forks in the road. And if we just listen to them, and one of the ways is through our dreams, we will accomplish those things that we wish to accomplish. And I think that one of my accomplishments was to show the world during a time where science is almost replacing a higher intelligence or a higher being or, you know, God in some people's minds, because it can be seen, it can be tested, it can be felt. And my goal was to show there's something even higher than science. So, so don't, you know, don't worship science. There's something that gave us that science. And when science doesn't jive with your intuitions that are coming from that higher power as well, believe but validate. And that's what I did throughout all of my cancer land. I believed my dreams, but I also validated, almost like a double-blind study with the doctors. I went back and said, give me these tests instead. Do this instead and prove me wrong. And when they would try to prove me wrong, they would prove me right. And that was believe but validate. I'm not telling anybody if you have a dream that tells you, look, you have brain cancer, and if you go up on the top of your building and jump up on your head, that you're going to be cured? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is research that. (laughs) You know, listen to it and research it. And if you're not comfortable with it, go back and say that to your guide. Say, look, you know, I've done research on this, and I'm not sure that landing on my crown is going to get rid of the cancer. It may if the rest of me dies as well. But, you know, let's, let's rethink this. So believe, validate. 
Right. That would be one way to kill a cancer, would be to kill the patient. That, that, that yeah. I suppose, would be fail-safe. But uh, understand what you mean. Uh, I know Gene and I do that. We'll, one of us will be not feeling well, and the other one will say something. And it, But then we go look and see still. We don't just tear off. And uh, uh, because the, the confirmation is, if you ask for it, is virtually always there. Yeah, absolutely. So once um, once your doctor discovered that you did have cancer, um, was he easier to deal with or was there still an ongoing struggle with regards to your treatment? There was uh, there was. Still, you know, at the, even at the very beginning, there was still some struggle because there were things that I wanted to do, which one of them is called the CSRA test. And there's a doctor in the Gourney in California who performs this at a rational therapeutic. And what they do is they take, at the time that you go in, I was going in for my second, um, my second surgery because now the cancer had been confirmed. Uh, you can take a small amount of tumor and place it in a kit that he sends you. And he grows this tumor in Petri dishes, bombards it with chemotherapy, and finds the one that works. Not the one that necessarily slows it down, but wipes it out. And it's very similar to going into a doctor with a sore throat and having him say one of two things. We can either take a swab of your throat, culture it, and find out exactly what chemotherapy is going to, uh, I'm sorry, what antibiotic is going to work and what you've got. Or we can just give you a, a broad spectrum antibiotic, and if it doesn't work, come back and we'll give you another one. Well, with chemotherapy, the treatment is almost worse than the disease. It'll kill you quicker. So it's not like you want to keep taking chemo after chemo to find which one works. And the way you find it doesn't work is if the cancer doesn't go away or comes back immediately. So I wanted to do that with my doctors, and they didn't want to do it. And I had to convince them. I said, look, it's my body, and your previous test did not work, all four of those mammograms. Um, the people that were reading them didn't see it. The doctors that were giving me the physical exam didn't feel it. And so now it's my turn to start, you know, Picking what it is I'd like to do to survive this because I'm already in stage two now. So they did work with me on that. And by the end of the first five years, they were starting to go back to, well, we know what's best for you. You know, you don't need an MRI anymore. You just need the mammograms. And I kept saying, but I don't feel comfortable with mammograms because they didn't work well the first time. And they kept saying, well, according to hospital policy, and, but what happened was um, I started getting the dreams again, uh, really bad. I had some nightmares. The clown one was hysterical. And I went back and said, look, I, I want an, M uh, an MRI, and I'm not leaving your office till I get one. And if you are not going to give it to me, I'm going to lie down here on your floor, kick my feet like a spoiled two-year-old, and I'm going to throw a temper tantrum that is going to absolutely curl your toes. You're going to have to call security to drag me out of here by my feet. And I got the MRI, and I was in stage four because the mammograms weren't showing it. I was too young. My breast was too dense. So that sent them running for the hills. And after that, when I would walk in and say, well, I want to do this, this, or this, the nurses would, like, 
you know, look at me in shock. And the doctor would turn to the nurse and say, we just tell her yes. And they would give me whatever I wanted. Wow. Um, again, wow. You said you said five years. How long? Do you mind me asking? How long did Cancer Land last? Almost For you? Ten, almost ten years. Ten years. Yeah, because it's really until you pass that five-year stage, you're at risk. I mean, five years is like the turning point. If you pass the first six months, okay, that's that's a good mark. And then when you pass the three-year point, that's a good mark. But you're on tamoxifen or arimidex or something for five years because the five-year is really the big point. And I didn't make it. Um, the tamoxifen, which the doctors didn't didn't tell me, or maybe they didn't know, even though it seems to me you should know what medicines are going to do and how to check their progress when you give them to a patient. Tamoxifen can stop working after two years. Uh, the body just builds up an immunity to it. doesn't work anymore. And, the, and tamoxifen is for hormone-receptive cancers, and it blocks estrogen production in the body. So what happened was at the end of the five years, I found that I had a second type of cancer. It was lobular, just like Elizabeth Edwards had that, that she died of. I think hers was stage, late stage two or early three, and I was stage four already. And um, the tamoxifen had stopped working. And I said to the doctor, well, weren't you testing for it every six months when I would come in for a blood test? And he said, no, there's really no way to test for the estrogen in the blood system. And I said, you have to be kidding me. With all the fertility clinics around this world that can tell when a woman is ovulating according to the estrogen level in her body, you can't use one of those types of tests to see if estrogen is building in somebody's body when they're on something as important as tamoxifen that's supposed to keep the estrogen out or you'll get another cancer? And he said, no. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. Go to CVS and buy one of the kits in there and let people use them themselves. So in my second book, that's what I did. I told women, if you're on tamoxifen, if you want to stay on that, then you need to check your own hormone levels. Go somewhere. Go find another doctor that will either take the blood test or use the kits out of CVS, but check your hormone levels, especially after two years. So this time I'm on Arimidex, um, and it's been seven years, so I passed the five-year point. And so really my cancer land lasted. It was a long ride. That was a long time to live down there with all those strange beings and, you know, doctors talking to you and you swear they're the jabberwocky talking to you because you don't understand a word they're saying. Um, you know, it was a long time to be in Bizarre Land. I have so many more questions. Um, Rick, do you mind if we take a quick musical break? Because I'm going to nail her with a couple personal questions in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, let's have some happy time before we nail them. Martini <laughs> before I come back so I can deal with this on a better level. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. So let's try um, let's try Scott uh, okay. Pettipas with East by Moonlight. Um, we were hearing horrible static, and apparently our listeners weren't, but. Uh, uh, Jane and I and our guests were all hearing it horrible, and we didn't want you to suffer. suffer. So we'll try it again, uh, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay with us, folks. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Welcome back, everybody. That was our friend Scott Pettipas from Canada with his song, East by Moonlight. We'll have links. Uh, there's a link in the chat room. There'll be links on the archive uh, on our website later tonight. So, Gene, you have a gazillion questions. Yeah, well, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of people out there that if they went through this kind of experience um, would have a lot of anger and animosity towards the doctors and the, and the medical team for not listening in the first place. Um, and combine that with um, the possible, you know, effects of depression at being told that you have a stage four cancer um, after successfully beating the stage two cancer. Uh, I want to talk about the emotion around it, how family support um, and supportive friends um, is integral to the healing process. And I want to get really, like, brutally honest because I wrote a book on healing as well, and I want to get really brutally honest with people about the fear and um, little, maybe if we can come up with some tricks to help people get over the fear and depression and mm-hmm. so well, where do you want to start <laughs> let's, let's start where you where you started um there there is anger with the doctors when you find that you're in stage four which is considered terminal when if they had listened to you and done the right test even years earlier or or even checked your blood for the beginning of a hormone being reintroduced into your system, um, you wouldn't have had a second, a second uh, cancer. But I believe that life, like dreams, are dualities. And with a duality in a dream, you may be dreaming about um, a, a snake, and maybe you're afraid of a snake. But on the spiritual level of dreaming, the snake is the kundalini which means you're getting incredible information. It's a wonderful uh, image to have in a dream. And I think the same thing happens on the earth plane. Um, yes, I, I went through the bad, um, you know, a bad experience with this. But like I said earlier, it was also in my game plan. And, and I realized that when I connected with my guides. And being connected to your inner self, your inner spirits, your doctor within and your guides, when they're on your team, you are not as frightened. Yes, you are still frightened, absolutely. And, but you, and, and you are depressed because if you thought you were depressed the first time, at least you didn't know what you were going to go through the first time, you know, until you, after you went through it. And now a second time, knowing what you knew, you know, I, I seriously considered suicide. I really did. I said, you know, I don't think I can go through this again. I don't even know that I want to go through this again. Lose all my hair. Again, during the winter, my head is freezing. Um, I can't play tennis. You can't go out and to, to the Christmas parties because you're under, you know, treatment and, and you're very vulnerable to the flu, cold. They can be deadlier to you than the disease, the cancer that you've got. You could come down with pneumonia and die from the flu because you have no immune system. So for the the duration of the time that you're in treatment, you've almost got to lock yourself away in order to, to keep from catching something else. So the thought of doing that a second time, 
I'll be really honest. I wanted to take a baseball bat to those doctors. I honest to God did. And I figured, well, what do I have to lose? If I'm going to die anyhow, what are they going to do? Lock me up? You know, um, you know, I was really angry. And then I worked through that anger. Because when you're angry like that, you allow that emotion to start eating on you. And I already had something else eating on me. So the last thing I needed was something else, you know, in there munching on me. So you have to find a way to say everybody is exactly where they need to be on the earth plane and they're learning because they couldn't be anywhere else. And to get angry at somebody because they don't understand where you are, if you are vibrating at a higher level, is like getting angry at a kindergartner for not understanding multiplication and division. They're just not there yet. And the doctors that I I was dealing with were very good at following their protocol. And their protocol worked for the norm. But the truth of the matter is when it comes to human beings, there is no norm. There's only individuals. Because as soon as you take the element of life and add it to any mathematical equation, it's never going to be the same simply because of quantum physics, which is, is the study of, of life. You, it's not going to be the same. It's going to change. And so I had to let go of that anger in order to work with my doctors to keep myself alive and at the same time teach them to change the way they handled patients, the way they thought, and the way they dealt with hospital policy in order to save more lives. I realized that if I hung on to my anger, I was not going to be able to complete my game plan, my celestial game plan, which was to teach my doctors or heal my doctors so that they could teach others how to also heal themselves. And so it was a big, it was a big thing that I had to do. And the first thing I had to do in order to work through the anger and the fear was to embrace death. Thank you. That's exactly what I was waiting for. To actually say, okay, if you want to take me, here I am. Because eventually we are all going to die. There is not a single human being on this earth that is going to live forever. And who wants to? So by embracing death as a friend, like meeting, you know, Mr. Black, the, the, the Brad Pitt movie. Embracing death as a friend and realizing that at some point that friend is going to come back for us. But also saying to that that friend, not today. I still have things to do and my guides are helping me do it. So I know you've got your eye on me, but I'm not going with you yet. I have to complete this first. And once I complete that, then, you know, we can chat. And if it's my time to go, I know that I am going to meet every person I've ever known in any lifetime over there and any person I have ever liked, loved from this lifetime that is now over there. And it's going to be okay because this life is such a blink in in the greater scheme of things. And the time we spend on the other time is so much longer. Our bodies are really just a suit 
that we're wearing in this lifetime, but our spirit is is forever. So by embracing death, which and we've died many times before, and saying, okay, I'm okay with this, if this is what I'm supposed to do, then you can stop focusing on death, stop focusing on being angry, and then you're no longer a victim, you're not in victim mentality, you've got the upper hand, and you start focusing on living every single second until your friend comes back to get you. Now, what about the, um, because this is something else that I've had to deal with, so I want to talk about that as well. Now, I've never had cancer, so I can't possibly fathom um, the pain levels. I have an inkling as to what chemo might feel like due to a bad reaction from a a radioactive test that they gave me, but I still, I certainly can't, I can't align any of my experiences with what you've gone through. I would like to hear your um, your tips, I guess it would be, or advice for people who are going through chronic illness or chronic pain, because one of the most um, terrifying things to humans, from my experience, is to be in pain that you can't control. And it is my understanding, because I have family members who have suffered from cancer, that it doesn't matter how many drugs they give you it doesn't do much for the pain. It's just there, and you kind of have to learn to live with it. Well, actually, um, you know, there there was pain, um, and I, I did reach a point where I remember I went to a holistic healer who wanted to do this form of ralphing on me where they kind of, I don't know, they like rough your body up, and I said, no, that's it. I'm done. I have been through enough pain in my lifetime that if there was something that I needed to get out of my system and pain was going to do it, it's already gone. So if you want to reiki me or do some type of a gentle healing on me, I'm all there. But if it involves pain, I'm over that. I'm done. Forget it. Um, So, yeah, there is pain there, and I did take pain medicine to help me, but I found that one of the things that helped me the most was um, to meditate. Meditation really helped, and so did hot soaks in the bathtub with Epsom salts and baking soda because it leached out a lot of the toxins that are in your body after chemotherapy. I mean, you've got things in there like mustard gas. I mean, my God, they used that in World War II to kill people, and now I just had that pumped into my veins to kill this this cancer. So. Yeah, I feel like a bug that has been sprayed with raid. And soaking in the bathtub with Epsom salts and baking soda seem to, to just draw a lot of those extra toxins out because your skin is, is sensitive. And I would um, meditate and I would listen to meditational tapes while I was in the bathtub and I would burn these wonderful little scented candles. You know, it was it, it was putting myself in a state of joy. What would give me joy? What would I enjoy doing? And I would do that. And despite the pain, the aches, the headaches, um, you know, the, your teeth hurt, everything hurt. I was still, you know, I could deal with it. I could handle it. And telling myself, 
this is only temporary. Even because even at the very beginning of, of my second, you know, stage four, I said, even if I don't survive this and the pain gets worse, it will only get worse before it gets better. Because when I die, I'm not going to be in pain anymore. And so then again, you're embracing death as a friend. If you've reached that point where you are not going to get better and you know you're not going to get better, then, you know, seeing that there is still going to be an end to that pain can be a real, you know, a real embrace from the other side. I went through, um, my mother died of colon cancer about eight months before I was diagnosed. So I knew what I was in for. Um, not necessarily the treatment, but as far as discomfort went, not being able to eat, um, pain. So that was one of the real fears I had going into this both times, knowing that um, having a pain level so great that you don't even want to live anymore is a, a real concern. And fortunately, I was able to simply work through it um, day to day, day to day, minute to minute. I would just simply work through it, curl up in my bed and sleep like a cat because I really believe that that sleep is is um, medicine. And I only watch happy or funny things on TV because there's nothing that will get rid of pain faster than a good, hearty laugh. I mean, a real one. I would watch things like The Three Stooges. Um, you know, I love Lucy. I did not watch the news. I Disney not- movies. Disney yeah. movies she saved my life last year. Yeah. Oh, funny things. The things that just made you yeah. laugh despite the pain. Yeah. And that's how, you, how, how I got through it um, because... The chemo is painful. The surgeries are painful. Um, they mean, cutting into your muscles are painful. But like everything else, the body, the body is wired to heal. And sometimes you just have to get over that hump of, of the pain that you're in and you'll start to heal. And if you don't, sometimes just embracing your friend called death and saying, I'm not a uh, you know, and, and I remember one time when I came back after I had a double mastectomy, I was in horrible pain. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd been through the ringer and I thought, what could be worse than this? And I remember thinking, well, how about being flogged like Christ and then nailed to a cross? And it put it all into perspective. I was like, I'm not going to complain anymore. Okay. I have not been crucified despite what I think has happened. Um, and sometimes that just, that will put it into proper perspective and you say as as bad as my pain is i know that there are other people that have suffered through worse pain and i can deal with it and uh, i think it's grand the way you uh uh hit on with the baking soda and the epsom salts in the tub because because it's true folks almost all chemotherapy and of course radiation therapy is they take something that will kill you, and, and then they just have tried to target it so it kills the cancer before it kills you. But it's always poison. Virtually it always poison. It is. It's slash and burn. And I'm looking for the day where it just targets the cancer because after it does kill the cancer, your chances of recovering from it are so much better. Um, I, I think that a lot of people have a hard time recovering from the treatment more than they have from the cancer. 
you know, you, you, the, the, the treatment leaches, you know, the calcium out of your body. Some of the women in my radiation group actually lost the two. Um, I took, I took my vitamins and I took my calcium, even though the doctor said, no, we don't want you taking any vitamins, no, no supplements, no organic tea. I juiced every day. I drank my kombucha tea. I built my system up. And when it was all over, they looked at me and said, my God, how did you do so well? You look so great. And I said, because I took my vitamins and I drank my juice. And, you know, I, I kept my system as strong as I could while I was going through this war. It's, it's almost like, you know, having a, a war and then saying, yeah, but we're not going to feed our soldiers. We're going to send them into battle. We're not going to give them water. We're not going to give them food. And whatever's left standing, well, those are the ones that will continue to build up when the war's all over. Yeah, or kill them all, let God sort them out later. It, it, it's a it's a strange it's a strange thing. Something that strikes me, you you formed a team with your doctors, and you didn't necessarily well, you didn't at all blindly follow what they had to say because you'd been down that road and it didn't work out so well. Uh, it was better when they were blindly following what you had to say almost, but that you you worked together, you let them do their work. You uh, There was an interesting article in the BBC about Steve Jobs that some of his friends think that, you know, they know he delayed treatment for quite a while uh, after being diagnosed because he changed his diet and did this and did that. And and you did reinforce your body with vitamins and juicing. And, um, but you didn't do that. You did this and that instead of this or that, and that it doesn't have to be an exclusive thing. Um, when you look at ways to care for your body yourself and then the medical community, that it's the team effort that really, uh, wins in the end, I think. Well, I think that the medical community is starting to see that there's really something there to the spiritual part of healing. They're allowing Reiki practitioners into the hospitals to Reiki people and they're using acupuncture. But by going holistically and conventionally, I created a medicine that was greater than the sum of its individual parts. Because like I said before, we are body and spirit and we need to address both part of our being. You can't just heal the body and expect the spirit to catch up or just heal the spirit. You really have to heal both. And I think changing your diet is very important. I only eat organic. I eat less food than I used to, although I was never overweight. I still eat less food and better food. And I think that's especially important for society today where we have obesity as the norm. I mean, it, you remember, I can remember growing up where the fat kid in the classroom was the one you laughed at. Now they're all fat in the classroom, and the one you laugh at is the one that they call skinny, which is normal. And it's because we are eating too much of processed foods. Now I only eat organic foods, especially when it comes to dairy. I eat very little meat, but if I do, it's organic because it contains hormones otherwise, and my body cannot handle the hormones. Right. So, so I I make sure that when I juice, I only juice organic vegetables because otherwise, you're juicing vegetables that have been sprayed with with DDT or whatever that's out there, and you're concentrating that and you're drinking it. 
So if you're going to juice, make sure it's organic. Yes, organic costs more. But if you buy less, it's going to come out the same. Why spend all that money on huge amounts of food when you can spend a little more money for a smaller amount of food and it weighs out exactly the same? And now you're healthier and your children are healthier because when you as a parent eat badly and you bring home processed foods that are not good for you, you're pushing that onto your children and you're teaching them. And you've got their cells that are learning to eat French fries and salty food and fats that are not good for them. And by the time they become adults, they're obese. Right, right, yeah. It is a very important part, but I agree with you that it's uh, – if I was in a life-threatening situation, I would not – Turn away, you know, three people show up to help, a doctor, a nutritionist, and a spiritual healer or my priest or pastor or whoever it is that I look to for guidance in that area. Why am I going to pick one when I can have all three? Exactly. Don't choose one. Take them all. And then put yourself into the equation. You have to self-advocate. They're all going to have a different opinion. And that's fine. You take all of their opinions under consideration, and you pick and choose from those opinions those things which apply to you and will work for you and are comfortable with you. Because in the end, you must choose that which you can not only live with, but can die with. And I'd rather die from my own mistakes than to die from somebody else's. Right, or at least at, at least be in there on the decision making um and it and it is tough because doctors are used to having patients that that don't get it and don't care to get it um uh, people are used to having doctors that don't want to talk to them don't want to cooperate with them and until you know you hopped up and down on one foot threatened to throw a temp- temper tantrum to get that to change in your in your case um if, if we all just sit around and expect the other one to be no help, then we're pretty helpless, you know, because you 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 make the choices with them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The the other the other element of that is that none none of the people on your healing team are going to get the first response to treatment. Um, you're going to get that. You're going to know what's working and what's not working. So when it comes to putting together a, a healing regiment that works for you and keeping in mind that everybody is individual everybody's body works differently uh, the the first knowledge of that is going to come to the patient the patient's going to either feel better or feel worse so that's you know if if the patient isn't taking control of their healing process then the doctors and healers, be they spiritual healers or holistic healers or or Western medical doctors who've been to seven years of university, none of them are going to have as accurate a picture of what this person's body is doing as the person will have. And people need to be aware of that, that, like you said earlier, and that's a very important element, your body does talk to you. And you can, in fact, talk in turn to it. 
exactly. And the other thing is this, you know, most people, at least, you know, there are a lot of people without insurance, but there are companies that will help them. Um, unfortunately, my book isn't out yet, but the whole back section is a huge resource section that the RA Block Cancer Foundation also uses. And the second time, rather than using the, uh, the, the CSRA test, I told my doctors because I didn't have time. I, I, I was really, if I was running against the, the race of life the first time, I was really running against it the second time when I was stage four. And I told them, I said, you know, I want to have a, uh, a PET scan or a CAT scan, PET scan done um, or MRI done after the first uh, two months of treatment because my treatment was six months long the second time. I said, if this tumor is not shrinking up, then we're going to change chemos then. I'm not going to go through six months of this treatment to find out it's not working. Um, I want to know right up front so I can change chemos. And my doctor said, well, that's not hospital policy. I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to fly across that table, grab him by the throat and swing him around like a rubber chicken. And, you know, my guide said, now calm down, calm down. And I looked at him and I said, then make it hospital policy because doing a six month treatment in the, is like, uh, taking a submachine gun into a dark room and just shooting around in the dark, hoping you hit something. I said, you're too smart to even say something like that to me. And he just looked at me for a second and he said, okay. So sometimes, you know, they just, they, they don't think, they just answer according to hospital policy. And that's where being really assertive comes in. And you try to say it nicely, but if that doesn't work, Go ahead, crawl across that table and grab them by the throat. Because in the end, it's your life. At least they'll have their attention. You know, <laughs> it can be that important. And they do. They get it drilled into them time and time and time again by the hospital board, by the insurance companies, by the, you know, patch them up, get their blood tests right, and put them on the street. If they die out there, it's not our fault. And I'm, I'm also wondering if from, you know, my own experience with my own doctor and his shock and surprise when I went to him and said, yeah, well, I'm getting Reiki sessions done and I've changed my diet and I'm meditating and I'm writing again and I'm documenting this process. Um, his response to that was, was utter amazement and shock. I'm wondering if maybe even the doctors who would like to bring in these outside the box healing methods into everyday practice. I'm wondering if they're thinking that maybe the patient is just not open-minded enough to do that because once once my doctor knew what I was doing, that was fair game for discussion and he wanted to be involved. Um and he's, you know, western medically taught. So I'm wondering if it if it wouldn't be better to to encourage people to open up that conversation with their doctor and mention that you have a holistic healer on your healing team because it is a team and you have a Reiki healer on your, you know, on your team. And once that conversation begins, it, I mean, it opens doorways that haven't been opened previously in, in years past with regards to our medical system. Well, I think there's, there's some real truth to that. And I, I believe that, that the Reiki has been accepted into the hospitals. Therefore the doctors can, be comfortable with that. But as one of my um, regular doctor friends that was not on my team, but a friend said, if you, if your doctor even 
associate with holistic type treatments, it could mean their job, especially with the really, really conservative hospitals. They consider that right on the same level with voodoo, and they just won't go there. And so to give my doctors the um, ability to uh, give them deniability is what I did is I didn't tell them that I was speaking with spirit guides. For one thing, if I had, they probably would have given me a padded room and some- <laughs> yeah, transferred you from from cancer ward to the uh, psych ward. The psych ward. <laughs> she, she snapped, yeah. kids. She snapped. Yeah. She snapped. Yes, yeah, yes. So I wouldn't have gotten the treatment anyhow. So by keeping that part of me quiet, I was able to keep them in a comfort zone to to work with me as as my doctors and then I just brought the other things in and and I was quiet although my New York doctors figured it out they did come into me at one point and I thought oh my gosh what kind of bad news do I have going on here now because they were like their backs were up against the wall and their hands were behind them and they were kind of staring at me and I thought oh my god what did I do grow you know grow another appendage somewhere that they're going to tell me about and they said well Kathy are you psychic and I said, well, why are you asking? Because now I'm worried. And I said, because everything that you've said so far is completely true. And everything that we wanted to do wouldn't have worked. And everything that you said would work is working. And we're just like kind of flabbergasted. So I did tell them yes. And they were okay with it. They were really good with it. I sent them my manuscript. They wrote me wonderful comments that are that I've sent out to the publishing companies. But my other doctors in Boston, I think I'll I'll wait until the book is published and I'll give them a signed copy. <laughs> Here, check this out. <laughs> yeah, we still we still haven't put my healing one in print, although it is out in ebook. And my doctor said the same thing. He wanted to know how I got back on my feet in a month when he was expecting it to take six. You know, mm-hmm. so that's but. But it's within reason. That conversation has to be had within reason. I mean, yeah, you're right. You don't want to go up to your doctor and say, "I had dreams." They told me I had cancer, so you have to do it. You have to do a test. Cut me but, open here. But yeah, cut me open here. <laughs> yeah, cut me over here. I'll tell you a diagram. Here, there's a map right here. Yeah. Um, but, you with a white feather. Yeah, right. That would go but, over really well. But it's always it's always um, a benefit, I think, to ease it into the conversation perhaps you know maybe mention i'm looking into yeah you know back off but i'm you know mention sometimes into reiki i'm looking into this or i'm looking into that and see what your doctor's response is and i i mean you might be surprised to have your doctor go oh i happen to know a really good reiki artist now i'm speaking from experience in canada and i wonder if maybe you know the rules are a little bit different here um but I don't know. Well, I would I, think, still... particularly in Boston and New York, they're very uh, on themselves about their medical knowledge. And but that's the kind of the point I was trying to make earlier is that physicians are used to having patients that don't want to know anything; they want a pill to make it better. And patients are used to having doctors that don't want to talk to them; they got two seconds, and okay, you know, I'll, the nurse will be back. Um, and if we all just sit here and say, "Well, the other side's not going to be any help." or they're not going to listen, it's a standoff that can't ever be moved from. So uh, I think there needs to be some of that, and there are some great people doing some great things. We've uh, 
we have a guest coming up in the future that's that's doing some great things about trying to bring more of that into into uh, medicine because uh, it certainly needs it, it certainly needs to be there. It's that to me, it's that missing ingredient. You used to have a family physician in a country town. He'd known you since you were young, and so he knew. You know, what do you mean? Cut you open? You don't talk like that. Whereas these doctors we see now, they may have never seen you before and may never see you again. You know. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't want to. You know, a lot of oncologist doctors. I'm not the type of person that likes to be prodded and probed by doctors. But um, you know, I think that it's hard to change the direction of a huge train, which I think is our, our medical system. And I think that it's really important that people realize that telling your doctor that you are going to go to um, a holistic doctor at the same time and do holistic treatment could, at this point in time, be dangerous. Because if he puts that in your chart and something goes wrong, the hospital is, you know, they're not going to be held responsible. Not only that, but your insurance company could consider dropping you. Yeah. And, so, again, that's that's what I think the difference between Canada and the United States is um, because my doctor didn't seem to have any fears with regards to – because we, we have um, public health care, so they don't have an insurance company to drop you, and I'm – Wondering if you know there's there is a difference because he didn't seem to have any. Oh, absolutely, the, the, absolutely a difference. Uh, uh, I don't want to get into my story, but I had I had been in intensive care, and um, they got me out of intensive care, and I, I that was okay. I thought, and I had been up in a regular room for less than two hours when my doctor, who I could barely understand. Stepped into the rooms. First time I'd ever laid eyes on the man. Never ever saw him in while I was in intensive care. And he stepped in and and asked me if I wanted to go home in the morning. And I just went slack jaw. I was like, "What? Uh, the nurses are coming through here. My blood sugar's not stable. This isn't happening. What do you What do you mean go home tomorrow?" And so they hammered on my blood sugar to get it within limits, and then. By that next evening, everything was fine, except they just couldn't get my red blood cell count the way they wanted it. So, And they had given me iron intravenously that blew out veins and just was fine. And um, uh, so he ordered two units of blood, and they came in at 3 o'clock in the morning and had me sign a lengthy document, which basically said that I would not hold the hospital responsible if I got HIV or had a bad reaction or anything else. And gave me two units of blood. They waited an hour. They came back and drew blood, took a blood test. Blood test was good. They put me on the street. That doctor didn't even schedule a follow-up with me for but 14 days later and uh, medicated me for a condition that it turns out I never had. So it it, it is. they and, and I was not, my hospital stay wasn't even being paid by an insurance company, but the, between the insurance companies and the hospital regulations and rules and policies in the United States, uh, and it is in the medical culture to some extent, almost everywhere. Uh, but here in the in the states, in particular, you can, it's, it, they have a colloquialism for it: 
treat them and street them. Because literally, once they're out of the hospital, it's not the hospital's responsibility. If they can show a medical panel, which is going to be friendly because they all get paid by insurance companies too, that, look, here's the blood tests when he left, and they'll say, yes, those are good blood tests. He was fine when he left the hospital. He should have come back when he felt bad. You know, and then there it is, patient error, and you're off. That's insane. And, and anyway. they're, they're talking about putting us in white rooms. I don't Yeah, it's a little nutty. But. White jackets. That's, that's, that's absolutely nuts. But um, before we get off onto a rant and, uh, and, and switch from Everyday Connection to Coffee with Source, how about we take a quick break, uh, play a song, and then want to come back and uh, let everybody know where your website is, how they can find your book, and... Uh, uh, learn more about uh, what's what's going on because it's a fantastic thing. I think people that are willing to step forward and share their stories uh, like you have uh, are what are going to make the difference in the long run because you're right, it's a big, big train and it'll take a little while to turn it. But I think the, the, I think the steering wheel is being pulled a little bit, certainly yeah. right here tonight. Yeah, I think so. And it's going to take books like mine and, uh, you know, Jean Victoria's book, Getting Out There, that doctors reading and right. patients reading and going into the doctors and say, but I read a book that said this and here's the book and you read it too. That's going to make a big difference. People need to put their stories down. Absolutely. Okay, okay. folks, we'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. Our buddy Jordan, 
who is with us in the uh, chat room this evening. Hadn't seen you earlier tonight. Played somebody else's song. See? <laughs> oh, can you? Hi, Jordan. Sorry, I'm not in the chat. My computer's frozen. Yes, her computer's having a little fun with her this evening, but it's all right. <laughs> I told her as long as Skype doesn't quit, who who cares about the rest of it? Absolutely. So, the book's not published yet, but you do have a fully functioning and interactive website and uh, multiple places where these people can find you, but we'll just mention the website um, address. Do you want to tell us where they can find you? Certainly. You can go to www.survivingcancerland. Cancerland is all one word, .com. And at the bottom of the page, that's my website, and at the bottom of the page on the left-hand side, you will see uh, links that you can well buttons basically you push the button it will take you to twitter and it will take you to my facebook pages um click on click on the surviving cancerland page that's my fan page because my profile page maxed out after like six months i hit five thousand so i can't add anybody else onto that page but i can add them onto the surviving cancerland page and if you friend me and post something on my Surviving Cancerland page, I can share that to 13,000 people because it will go automatically onto my profile page, my Twitter, which is 6,000 plus, and my LinkedIn, which is over 1,000. So, um, and my fan page, which is almost up to 1,000, and I haven't had it that long. So befriend me on the Surviving Cancerland page. And then I can share any of the information you put on there. At the top of my web page is a big yellow button that says Kathy's blog. You can read any of my blogs, and I have some blogs about my book um, on the blog page. And if you click on being a friend on my blog, your picture will come up, and I can follow you back to your blog. And uh, I have friends who paste their blogs onto to my blog site. And I share with other people on their blog sites. And that way you get your, your word around a little bit more. And it, it's nice, you know, sharing with other people. So um, definitely become my friend on the blog and I'll friend you back. You're an advocate of um, speaking out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I am. I, I'm an advocate on sharing information. I mean, we have we have the website, the Internet. Uh, rather that and websites on the internet that have so much information and uh, people who used to be the patients that would simply go to the hospital and say well I'm not feeling well fix me are now going in as e-patients and they have education on their their symptoms what they could possibly be in the types of tests that they would like to have performed and that's a real plus in the medical field because now you have educated patients who are self-advocating. It's also empowering for the patient as well. Um, and that's something that I think people, um, it's really important that people understand when it comes to the healing process, is that the minute you feel powerless, it's, that's a very dangerous time for you. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really important for the patient to educate themselves so that they feel more in control. If the family to help the patient feel more in control and for the people in, in charge of 
caregiving, including the doctors, to give the patient enough information that they do feel like they have some control. Because without that, there's, you know, uh, you can go downhill real fast. Yes, you can because you feel like like you're just a leaf in the wind. And education is power. You you have the power to make a choice. When you when you don't have choices, you feel like a cornered animal, and and that's never good. Yes, not a not a good feeling at all. Um, to talk about pain, though, I wanted to say one more thing about pain that that uh, Jean Victoria had brought up. When my father was dying of bone cancer that he got from being sprayed with agents once over in Vietnam, um, he was in a tremendous amount of pain until hospice stepped into the picture. And hospice was so good about managing pain. They were incredible. He, When he was first diagnosed, I had to spoon feed him because he couldn't lift his arms. He had it in the shoulders. After they started giving him the proper pain medicine, he was lifting his arms up over his head. It was amazing. So, and and just because you're having hospice come in to control your pain does not mean you're dying. They're not only for dying. Hospice can come in and work with you for six months, eight months, however long your treatment is, to help you control your pain until your treatment is done. And then they hug you goodbye, and you made one friends, and they're there for you if you ever need them again for somebody else. But just just because you have them come in does not mean you are dying. They, they're very cool. Um, here we, we call them pain clinics. Um, I have no idea what the waiting list is like over there, but over here the waiting list can be up to up to five to six months to get in um, to, to a pain clinic. But their methodology is, is absolutely brilliant because they really focus on mind, body, and spirit um, with regards to pain control. They don't advocate abuse of um, narcotics, but they do, you know, reassure you that it's okay to take the narcotics to break the pain cycle. Um, I, some of the things, again, that's what that internet is for. If if you're not able to get in touch with or to get the assistance of a hospice or in Canada a pain clinic, get on the internet and find um, find a community out there. There's tons of them. Fibromyalgia communities, cancer communities. Um, it, it, name the disease. If there's a community support group for it, get in touch with those people and start tossing around ideas for how to manage your pain because there are ways to do it. And, um, you know, you don't have to wait for to sign up with because with, um, sometimes it can take a long time. So. Oh, it, it it can, and 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 do get in touch with a group that's in your area. Um, again, uh, we're not uh, giving you medical advice, but but spiritual and heart advice. Get in touch with some folks that know what you're going through. Get in touch with folks in your area because your country. We have listeners all around the all around the world that uh, tune in, and um, and the terminology is different. Uh, Policy have, is different. We have both pain clinics and hospice in the United oh, States, okay. and they're different. And um, uh, and 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 what they do is is different. Chronic pain, where that's really all you have, is a pain clinic, and and pain that's sort of together with something else, 
or due to the fact that you are terminal is is what hospices do, but they are both just angels of mercy and and really it, they it, use the same methods though don't they yeah very much very much the same uh, but I know for example a, a good friend of mine just lost his wife a few months ago, and um uh when they put her on hospice, everything suddenly got better, but that's because she was on Medicare. And the regulations are different if it's a hospice or a nursing home. The hospice mm-hmm. can give drugs that the nursing home can't. And uh, because it's palliative care for terminal uh, patients. So um, it's screwy <laughs> the way they have it cut up into its little pigeonholes, but they do. Uh, uh. So, you know, find out in your in your area uh and the, and one of the best ways to find out is from other people that are uh, challenged with the same uh, uh, the same disease. And your doctor can also um, help you with that. If you tell your doctor, "Look, I want, I need uh, to be in palliative care, or I need hospice to come to my house to help me control my pain." If, if you've had surgery due to cancer or something else, if you've had a kidney removed or something like that, they can set that up to where the nurses come into your house and help you for how you know a, an extended period of time and then they leave and you're fine and you and you go on, uh, about your merry way and and about your life it just it doesn't mean what it used to mean which was oh they called in hospice that was it might as well you know get your life in order <laughs> right and, and and again one of the key things here is accepting the help that's um something another really important element of this you don't have to be superman it's okay. It's okay to let other people hold you up, to help you, hold your hand, to comfort you. It's okay to be mad, to be sad, to be any of the million emotions that you're going to run through. It's okay. It's expected. Um, doesn't mean you're not. That. It doesn't mean fighting hard. You know, yeah. I fought very hard getting back from the challenges that I had, and but I also knew when it was time to raise the white flag. Mm-hmm. And and that's important too. But you know, just because you're angry and you're having a physical and emotional responses to what you're going through, just proves that you're a normal human being. Because if you could go through all the things that you're going through when you have health issues like this and challenges and in emotional and physical pain, and you felt nothing, and you said you felt nothing, you'd be a psychopath. Of course, you're angry. Of course, you're frightened. Exactly. That's normal, and that's where your support system comes in. Your friends, your family, um, you know, they they may not understand the depth of what you're going through, but they understand enough to know that they need to, to be there for you, to call you, to send you little cards, to send you a little happy face on the email or bring over a covered dish or something. And it makes them feel good to be able to do that as well. Or, you know, to, to just to hire somebody to come in and clean your house and do your laundry while you're going through treatment. Absolutely. Well, listen, folks, be sure and visit survivingcancerland.com. Um, Sounds like a tremendous wealth of information there. Tremendous amount of information there. Wonderful support system as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we want to thank you, Kathleen, for sharing your time with us and your story with us. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been great. I've been able to cover a lot of things. 
Absolutely. We, we, we try to cover a lot. Um, so, folks, I hope you'll join us next week. On Tuesday, we have Robbie Porter joining us. He's going to talk about uh, uh, raising sensitive and, and, and gifted children. Uh, you may remember the uh, 16-year-old twin light workers that we had on our show earlier, Gianna and Genevieve. This is their mom. We're bringing mom on the show. We're getting mom on the show. How's that work, mom? And I normally don't reach too far out in the future, and and and. Uh, but for anyone that's listening because of the cancer and health connection tonight, uh, we're thrilled that on January 31st, Dr. Terry Walls is going to be joining us. Um, Dr. Walls was in stage two progressive uh, MS, multiple sclerosis. Uh, being a doctor and a professor at a uh, medical school, and um, she had access to all of the latest therapies, all the latest treatments, and by 2007, she was diagnosed in 2000. By 2007, she was in a wheelchair and couldn't get out, was uh, in zero gravity chairs in her house. And uh, she went out and researched for herself instead of what she got from her medical texts, which she said was not much. the medical texts didn't have the answers that she was seeking. So she went out herself. And um, as as she said at one point in in a presentation I've seen her give, uh, uh, the the. My friends that were doctors and my medical techs didn't know the answers, but the Internet did. Um, And she put together a change in diet and nutrition to be directed at uh, feeding her cells on the cellular level. And she now rides her bicycle five miles to work every day. Wow. So, uh, and, and she's just completed a study with a group of other folks that were in stage two Progressive MS. They they wouldn't allow the study on anyone in stage one, but they did the study on stage two, and the uh, results apparently have been spectacular. So um, we hope you'll tune in for that if you're uh, uh, facing health challenges. Get with your doctor. Get started. Get on the road, and uh, but don't be afraid to bring in a whole team. Absolutely. All right. Well, kids, we love you. And um, as always, we ask you to stay connected and keep smiling. Keep smiling. Keep laughing. Night. Join Rick and Jean again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me. And be sure to like their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everyday connection. Worried you might miss an episode? Don't worry. Subscribe. Find us on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your everyday connection. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. 
We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.